0: Welcome to the McGuffin. I'm Alex and with me as usual is James, we're skipping the intro because I forgot to open our website uh, to see what our previous episodes were. So uh, we're talking about You Can Count On Me today, the 2000 film, uh, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, who at this point was an established playwright. Um, and he had also co-written the screenplay for Analyze This and I believe Gangs of New York comes out this same year, year 2000 um, and naturally become pals with Martin Scorsese which helped him get a little extra clout to get a movie made Um, this movie also helped launch Laura Linney uh, queen of 2000s indie drama and Mark Ruffalo uh, because XXXY and The Last Castle were soon after this and uh, these are sort of the first movies that really launched them as the people that and we would know them as for the next 10 years until Mark Ruffalo became the Hulk, you know? Um, and I think that something that's always important to talk about with one of these movies, even though I bring it up pretty much any time we talk about a movie like this, is this movie's produced by Paramount Classics. And because this 2000 is in that period when home video revenues allowed studios to operate uh, indie wings sort of as a, almost like a loss leader where you certain things are worth throwing a couple million at, um, like something like this when you think Or, you could... or
1: 1.2 million. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not even two. But yeah, yeah I know right. what you mean.
0: Yeah. Um, at the with the idea that you can get maybe a couple of awards nominations and even if not, even if the movie totally fails, nobody likes it, nobody sees it, chances are people are gonna rent it by chance and still hate it. But you know, you can make your money back on home video. And um this this movie really fits into that that feel for me it's like someone was taking a flyer because martin scorsese said hey you should you should give this guy a shot and uh you know I, like we benefited for a long period of time we got a lot of good movies out of that period um got a lot of growners too but a lot of good ones and this is one of the good ones so uh yeah you can count on me
1: yeah and i mean Lana has a career as a, a playwright up until this point um <laughs> but as you said for a first time director this is kind of a good a good jumping off point and lenny and ruffalo are known as stage actors at this point as well
0: lenny has had like a bit of a run you know she's been in a lot of hollywood movies i think she's the lead in congo and she's uh the is she the female lead in the truman show she's married to jim carrey in that movie right yeah
1: i yeah i'd say she would be he has another kind of uh love interest i'll oh, say yes of but, course yeah, the one who kind of watches from the real world, but yeah, she's she's dipped her toe into Hollywood, no question.
0: Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, you can just tell from how each of them speak that they are stage actors primarily. You know. <laughs> what makes you say that? Um, okay, so the I love so I love Laura Lenny so much in a way that I can't even always explain. Um, I just very really really love watching her play. Um, just human beings going through crisis. Like I think she is uh, fantastic in this movie and unbelievably watchable in this movie. Um, and similarly in The Savages, which is not like h- a hugely different movie plot-wise, um, but instead Mark Ruffalo is swapped with Philip Seymour Hoffman and it's just sort of another sibling sibling drama. And that's one of my favorite movies that I've ever seen. Um, and she is incredible in that. And there's just something about her just playing a normal person in some sort of crisis that they can't figure out for themselves that I just find extremely compelling. But the the thing that is always con- confusing to me about her is that she really excels at playing regular people, but she sounds like she like comes from a life where she was just always dripping in money. You know, like she just has okay. some sort of voice where maybe she just sounds like she's uh, from the 1950s, you know, and um, and maybe that's part of it, and that sort of adds to the stagey element because, you know, you go back to older movies. The further you go back in the history of of uh, cinema with sound, the more people sound like they're trying to be on stage, you know. And she's sort of, I'm not saying she has to for technical yeah, limitations. Exactly, yeah. I'm not saying she's projecting like like she. Um, she f- needs the audience to hear her because she's very quiet. But it's just there's something about her voice that has some sort of a sort of like stagey power to it, you know?
1: Yeah. I, And what I'll say about her is I love that you can see with, without it being too showy, um, the sort of two minds that she's functioning with at any given mm-hmm. time. Um, and her, I mean, right, just as a modern example, I think most people would be. But many people would be familiar with is her in Ozark you know she's trying to keep this family together but um is <laughs> beset by endless tragedies and problems that need to you know come across a family in a Breaking Bad type tv show mm-hmm. um and, and so it's not that thing where something bad happens and then everyone looks away and she has this moment to herself you know the camera's stuck on her and she like you know bites her knuckle and has this obvious sort of um, trying to keep it together for the family, but has uh, has some things to worry about. But in this one, even it's such a small one, and it's so early, and I don't know that's the best example. But I just remember taking a, a very early note on it. It's when Rudy says the the story writing assignment is unstructured, yeah. and she just flashes this tiny little smile. But it it she can't get into why that's funny or you know how you know she seems to be very charmed by her child at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and finds her her son quite adorable and just like kind of has to keep driving and moving and get on with her day. But there's like this tiny little glimpse, this this fading little face that she makes um, where you see her having to do two things at once. And that's throughout this movie. She's trying to keep it together for her family. She's, um, you know, she's... There's turmoil at her job and, you know, with with Terry, with, um, you know, the the romantic interests of her life. Um, I, I just find she's so good at playing the person who is interacting with the humans and then the the human that she is herself. And without it being too showy, um, I think she just nails that subtext really, really well all the time.
0: Yeah, I agree. She's extremely good at playing the middle. And I think there's, I think that is sort of also just defined her as an actor and that it's pretty rare to find somebody who loves Laura Linney. And it's also pretty rare to find somebody who hates Laura Linney, you know, like there's no, she's just sort of, um, She's just very middle in general, yeah. and I, do, I, I I think I love Laura Linney. <laughs> I I love Laura Linney. I've been on this this trade for twenty years now. You know? Yeah, <laughs> there's not a, okay. Let me correct myself. There's not a lot of people in high school in the early two thousands talking about how they love Laura Linney. Sure, you yeah, know? okay,
1: I'll, I'll give
0: you that. Yeah. Um. So I think this this movie is. Um, I mean, it's very. It's very obviously a low budget movie. And it's also very obviously somebody figuring out how to make a movie. You know, this movie is not particularly gorgeous, partially out of um uh necessity because, you know, with a, a movie like this on a budget like this, you're just sort of you're always racing against the clock. And the idea is just to get it on, get it filmed. And, you know, the, the I mean, the great surprise of um Margaret or sorry, Manchester by the Sea was that. Kenneth Lonergan sort of made a pretty movie, like visually pretty movie, you know, because like Margaret, which is my favorite of his movies, is also very um, kind of drab visually. And uh, as is this one, and it's just sort of like, you know, it's a, it feels very much like somebody who is, you didn't necessarily need to know that Kenneth Lonergan was a playwright to guess that he's a playwright directing a movie, you know, and it's very... There's a lot of setups that are just sort of designed basically just to capture the actors, um, the vast majority of the setups, and there's nothing particularly showy in the movie, and it's just about um, hanging out with these people as they navigate their own personal crises, and um, it's so important that, uh, I mean, it's necessary that the people who the camera is trained on, you know, the, the more uh quote-unquote boring the camera is the more the people it's focusing on need to um deliver and in Laura Linney's case she absolutely does I'm not the biggest Mark Ruffalo fan in general and specifically in this movie like he kind of he doesn't really do much for me but um but yeah I think the degree of difficulty on the actors is much higher given the way that the movie is made and I think um I think it's really difficult for the actors. And I think that Lenny specifically absolutely delivers and totally carries the movie. You know, Uh,
1: I really like him in this.
0: Yeah. I, I know I did at one point. I think there's just (laughs) something, something has been broken in me about Mark Ruffalo. I think he's just become too irritating as a human being. (laughs) And also he's like the lead in the only Todd Haynes movie I hate. So that, that hurt for me when dark waters came out, I guess. I think that that sort of was the last straw. Um, yeah there's just there's just something had because i definitely liked him for a long period of time and then something something changed
1: you know? yeah i think i i could i think that it has sort of uh gone back and ruined this for you because i think it's good i think it's um just I, the way that he he speaks and just that he's he's fidgety in a way that i think is hard to control and definitely mm-hmm. hard to fake um and something just about his teeth and his lips and the way he enunciates it's it's not the um that perfect elocution you're talking about with Laura Lenny. I think it works really well for for this character I I I know I'm not going to change your mind on this but uh, I'll go on the record of saying I think he's actually like very good at this and I'm yeah I I'm not uh gonna die in the hell of Mark Ruffalo's entire career but I think this is I, I have very little problems with what he does in this one
0: fair I think that the thing that I see that I see too much of that is a, it's a real fine line as like somebody who obviously really loves like uh golden era Marlon Brando, you yeah. Know? I was gonna
1: say Brando, is that what
0: it is? Yeah. yeah, which and and you know, you so Ryan Gosling is an example of an actor who I very much love, um, who also totally adores uh uh early period Brando, especially like in the mid 2000s and. Even within, so you look at Half Nelson, which is probably his Brando-iest movie. It, it, from scene to scene, it changes from him being amazing to him being annoying because he's like the perfect amount of Brando or too much Brando or too little Brando. Um, whereas Mark Ruffalo, I think he's always a little too much Brando in this movie for me. You know, like all of those, those little things that you're telling me about. Um, the fact that he says refreshments instead of drinks, I know that's not his <laughs> his choice. You know, that's that's lot it all the way, but um, there's just something about it that that just sort of i mean i can't say it feels fake because of course it's a movie everything feels fake we're uh, smart adults we know it's fake but um i don't know there's just something that doesn't connect with me. you know okay yeah that's fine yeah um so this movie starts off pretty uh pretty intensely and i think that the and intensely i mean just sort of with an intense moment for, uh characters who we will never see again for the most part um it just sort of comes at you and you don't know who these characters are um they're talking about something totally innocuous and the uh car swinging out and just sort of leading to their death is, is a very interesting setup followed by the uh police officer who doesn't know or daryl who doesn't know how to explain what has happened to to the babysitter and i think that I mean, I think it's a, a minute long, all in, <clears throat> but I think it's a really interesting way to sort of set the table for um, for the movie to come because, you know, you just sort of see the, you don't really know what you're looking at um, in that scene until, or you don't know who you're looking at until after the people are already dead, right? Then we sort of are able to piece together that those kids in there watching TV are, um are probably the children of the people who just died. And this person, this Amy is probably a babysitter, but maybe also a kid of, the, of those parents. You know, you, yeah. d- you don't necessarily know that depending on how much you know about the movie going into it. Um, and I think it just sort of sets the table for um, just not really knowing anything. And I think that, you know, we're able to piece it together pretty fast and it's, you know, two cuts um, from that moment gets you to a funeral which is very obviously showing that those those two kids are the children of the people who died um but i think it's sort of it does a really good uh job of setting setting the table for our characters who we don't follow as children we follow them as adults but it just sort of gives us an introduction to them in a way that i think is really interesting and um it's not just people saying well our parents died when we were young you know it's actually giving you some sort of visual to tie that to and there are it's you know it's a it's a lot of work you have to cast amy ryan and shoot some some truck stuff you know and and it it doesn't result in a lot of screen time but um i think it's a it's a valuable um a valuable choice especially since the movie seems to be primarily about characters who um want to believe that there is something out there and there just might not be, you know?
1: Yeah. So you cast Amy Ryan and Michael Countryman and put their name in the credits, in the <laughs> opening credits. Yeah. You know, there's other people with more screen time who don't receive the same treatment. Um it just just from my experience that I was I would only seen it this movie this time this week. Um, and in Manchester by the Sea, the podcast we did on that, I was talking about the the grief porn and the mm-hmm. the the level of tragedy and how sometimes maybe it gets a bit overdone with the the uh, stretcher falling down as they're trying to load the ambulance in, in Manchester by the Sea, and I was just wondering to what level we're gonna see that in this movie, and it, it comes very quickly, um, but not much after that. You know, after that it's just kind of these people. Not even necessarily dealing with that the grief of that experience, but you could that's obviously shaped them or shaped um, likely the level of closeness that they would have. You know, they probably just raise each other a bit more than they would if their parents, were, you know, were alive uh, through their childhood. Mm-hmm. So there is less of that in this, and I think I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it avoided that thing that you said about them just having to explain it and i just love the it's a sibling movie mm-hmm. you know it's, it's a relationship that we don't see that much and i was thinking about this when you're talking about ruffalo and uh brando and some of those classic characters of this uh, kind of drifter with the heart of gold who comes to a small town and kind of shake things up and makes people rethink their choices you know whether he comes into um, you know the suburbs and awaken some woman out of her drab life Mm -hmm. um it's not that it's it's a good kind of refreshing change on that it's it's not the romantic relationship it's it's played differently because they're siblings and you know they still kind of bounce off some other people that aren't family but the the central relationship here is the the siblings and that's different and it's different to see um that character like a brando like other sort of misfits kind of I don't know, down on their luck or can't get out of their own way sort of um, this one goes in a, in a different direction and like in Manchester by the Sea things happen you know things that are unpredictable happen and they're not these gigantic life changing events but just the way people bounce off each other and that sort of illuminating their differing personalities I think that's one of the things I really like about this movie in a movie that there's a lot of things that I like
0: yeah, and I think I would <clears throat> I would almost compare it more to Margaret, which is a movie that's, you know, the first five minutes you see something tr- tragic, and then the following two hours and 55 minutes it's just uh, Anna Paquin trying to piece it together, you know, and sort of the thing that's so interesting about that movie is her going round and round in circles and examining this sort of ethical situation from basically every possible angle and trying to find an answer and uh, realizing that she doesn't um, or that she can't, that there is no answer and I think that this movie to me is very similar in uh, in that way with sort of less of a, um, <clears throat> I think the ending is a bit less pointed in You Can Count On Me than it is in Margaret. And I think that um, there are even fewer <laughs> answers in this <laughs> because it's less exhaustive because nobody really commits to anything in this movie. Everybody's just sort of wandering. And um, it does, you're right, it does sort of allow for that. that just sort of, uh, sibling relationship to sort of thrive and and we are picking up things that we missed in, in in between the uh opening credits and where we meet uh laura linney as as sammy um as an adult you know there's a there's a lot that is only inferred that we have to pick up on on how they um relate to each other her and her and terry and and i think that um like margaret it's it's a movie about trying to figure out who is in charge you know like there people are or you know, is there some sort of control over me? And I don't just mean this from the religion aspect. I mean this from basically every level of the movie, you know, like, um, when you're a kid, say like Sammy and Terry, they have rules because their parents told them what the rules are, you know, like the, the thing we hear them talk about as kids are rules, you know, when, when, um, Daryl comes to the door to talk to Amy and, uh, said you can't go outside or we can't leave Amy um, or whatever that conversation is it's like it's like um, what Rudy will say later you know like I need structure or something you know because he is a child and they were children who had structure because their parents gave them structure and then you know unbeknownst to them that's been taken away because their parents are dead right Um, and Rudy Sr. is an absentee father you know you sort of get that uh, the comparison point you've got Sammy who is always present even in the middle of her work day, <laughs> well, you know, when she yeah. has to be. Um, and Rudy Sr., who is who is never. Um, Sammy is looking for a version of religion that she sort of has it in her mind is going to, like, help her in some capacity, even though um, Ron is telling her that doesn't exist, you know? Uh, essentially telling her that doesn't exist. And um, the other one is, you know, we, we don't... We hear mention of Larry a bunch of times, Sammy's old boss, um, but he's... Uh, who just sort of let... Um, had this structure that Sammy had gotten used to and really enjoyed being able to pick up her kid and drive him to the babysitter after school um, and then going back to work. And he, he Larry is replaced by Brian who uh, desperately wants to control the branch and uh, to the point that it's absurd, you know? Um, and... Uh, you know what we've learned throughout him or throughout the movie is that one he can't really control the branch partially because (laughs) because of sammy
1: um sammy he he can't control himself he can't
0: well and then then that's the other thing he can't uh he can't even control his own personal life right or his his role in his personal life um uh or what he's supposed to do as as a husband and expecting father um but yeah, and I just think it's it's a movie about people trying to find um, answers that they'll probably never find, but they all relate back to wanting to feel like there's some sort of set of rules in the in the world, you know, and um, or something you can count on, I guess, for uh, lack of a better better phrase. But, yeah. um, do you think we're meant to
1: believe that Sammy makes some of the more Impulsive and perhaps uncharacteristic decisions because of Terry's presence, or is that sort of uh, some decisions like do who would her parallel life if Terry hadn't shown up uh, look somewhat similar? Is it about him being a negative, uh, having a negative effect on her? Is it about her seeing the way he lives and trying to? Vera a bit away from her very kind of straight edge life mm-hmm. uh what, it, what, what do you see as the influence that Terry has on Sammy
0: um so I think that my my read on it is that Sammy is just dealing with a lot of change at once right so um with Terry coming back you're you're I don't necessarily think that he's the reason that um she starts going through a lot I think he's part of it, but I also think the uh, the other aspect of it is uh Brian becoming her boss after what seemed like a pretty idyllic situation for her. I think that those two things coming together creates what is probably a pretty big roadblock for somebody who is um probably really settled into her life, you know. Um I I don't know how old Rudy is, but he's probably what like 8, 9, something like that. She says he's eight when Brian. Asks oh, does she? Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, so she's probably sort of settled into a pretty repetitive life for five or so years, you know? And I think that it's just sort of a couple of things coming together at once that have sort of created um, a bigger obstacle than she has seen in front of her in quite some time, you know? yeah and no, also I, the combination of seeing terry would bring up tons of old memories that we aren't really privy to um but would absolutely be the case you know like you you'd be excited to see the sibling that you love but also you've been through a lot of trauma together you know and he is the other living signifier of the trauma that you've been through
1: right and but i think the other element at play is that as rudy jr gets older and i, I think we see this sort of spelt out um he wants to know more about his father. Like he just would have a natural curiosity, and uh, to take Terry's view of it at least, that she's sheltering him and that maybe doing him a disservice by not explaining who her, who his father is, or that he even lives so close by. Apparently, what mm-hmm. kind of person he is uh, in this this curiosity shows up when he's allowed to write a story about anything and he writes a story about his father mm-hmm. and that's not because he hears about his dad a lot i think it's in fact the opposite yeah. that he sees other people talking about their father and meets other people's dads and his mind just goes to uh, understandably goes to well then what's my dad who's my father why why don't i see him and what kind of person is he and if you're not going to explain that to me it, I I am it's going to find um it's going to manifest itself as in this assignment I can write about anything and I'm going to write about my dad because I have to fill in this blank so in a sense it it seems as though he th- this situation can't go on forever as as an 8-year-old um you know by the time you get to 20 and you just you know if you don't have any questions or haven't been given any answers um you know the, the, something needs to kind of make make some sense so I think it's a bit coincidental that Terry comes back at what I think would have been probably a transitional age for this child, anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know the age that you should tell, you <laughs> tell no, your. No, I don't those, either. Things either. You know, <laughs> um, I think that's something that is just so situationally dependent. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad that an eight-year-old doesn't know uh, when this is the situation, doesn't know the story, but uh, she, you know, she's sort of struggling with the idea of when to. Um, I mean I guess it's the sort the story that sort of brings on that conversation with Bob where she's uh thinking about telling Rudy about his father. Um but yeah, it's I don't know. I guess I just don't really have a point. I'm just sort of working through this in my head out loud. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's just it's it's very much Terry's view. And I certainly don't agree with everything Terry has to say or <laughs> <laughs> this yeah changing, let's, so, i think we're both
0: on this we're both on the same page that taking rudy jr to see rudy senior was a bad call <laughs>
1: yeah okay. I, i'll agree with that okay. um uh, quite flippantly decided to
0: yeah um, that's and, classic brando right there brando <laughs> that's true mm.
1: uh but yeah i mean and i think that was kind of getting to the question of how much of this how much of these dominoes fall because terry pushes over the first one mm-hmm. or if the timing is Different, and I think you said something earlier about um, this not having a ton of answers, and this maybe not being a gigantic uh, turning point in the relationship between Sammy and Terry. Because I think there's a version of "You Can Count on Me" that is a few years or or a few years earlier, when you know the last time they had any Mm -hmm. consistent contact, and probably in a few years, you know, when Terry comes back to ask for money or you know reaches out to Sammy again for you know hopefully better reasons mm-hmm. um but i it I, it doesn't seem like this is the one thing they'll point to as the turning point in their relationship or in their, in their lives it just kind of seems like one chapter in a ongoing novel about the way that they interact and how um They've led different lives.
0: No, I agree. I agree entirely. Yeah, you're right that it's just sort of it's just another chapter in that if there was some sort of world where Paramount Classics wanted this like sibling uh, sibling relationship drama equivalent to Before Sunrise, like they're very easily could have done this with mm-hmm. uh, with Sammy and Terry, you know. Um, yeah, because not a ton changes, you yeah. know, for
1: as much as I say what I like about this movie is or one of the things I like about this movie is that um Things happen. You know, they they do go to the bar. They do get caught. There is that moment of incomplete knowledge where Terry acts out on Rudy Jr. because he thinks he squealed on him, to use his words, Mm -hmm. and banishes him to the baby house because he's a baby. Um, Stuff does happen, you know, in the affair and the proposal with Bob. And, you know, there are things that happens. It's not just this dinner with Andre Total character study of just people talking to each other. There, are, there are narrative points that move things forward, but it's not, um, it's not a typical three act structure. That now things are wildly different, or we've come back to the same spot after uh, achieving these, you know, very kind of uh, template uh, uh, act beats.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. And you know when he when Terry gets off the bus at the beginning and when Terry gets on the bus towards the end, not a lot like about the human beings has necessarily changed, you know, but, uh, but you're right that they have participated in events, you know, (laughs) like, um, for lack of a better, better way to to say it, you know, it's, it's plotless, but it's not aimless, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just think it's unstructured as a, Rudy Jr. might say about his assignment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one day
0: Rudy Jr. is going to learn that he loves movies uh, directed by playwrights, you know, as we all do. <laughs> yeah. And then he'll be uh, really appreciative, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, I had a question about the the visuals, actually. I sure. But I was talking about Bob's proposal. Um, When they cut to the table right after he's proposed and you can't see the wedding ring. Yeah. It's hidden behind the wine bottle. Yeah. And did you have any thoughts on that? It was kind of the one... Thing that I didn't um i it seemed like I may have been missing something. Whereas I think a lot of this stuff's pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah. Um I don't have an answer. I certainly noticed that you can't see the ring either. I honestly my gut tells me it's a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? That's what it's, it's so perfectly hidden by that line. Below. I know. I know. It's just uh it's either a mistake or an idea that doesn't land, one of the two. You know? Okay. Yeah. And let's give them the benefit of the doubt, an idea that doesn't land. Okay. Or an idea that we don't we don't see. Yeah, exactly. Um No, we we're all seeing. We're wrong. We we know we have all the answers. <laughs> um you, you did mention that it's not
1: um I, I I think you said not a particularly pretty movie. Mm-hmm. Um
0: I, I, think, I will say the last scene of them sitting on the bench is like shockingly gorgeous compared to everything that comes before <laughs> it. I don't know, there's just something about the way the the greens of the um, trees behind them sort of reflect on their faces that I, I think is really gorgeous, but...
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think you're... Um, I think I would say, and you'd probably agree that it's just it's shot in a very kind of naturally beautiful place like there's nice Mm -hmm. things to look at it's just maybe not the the composition is uh, of the frame isn't always a masterpiece
0: no correct and and i think a lot of so let's go back to our last podcast no time to die right credits start i'm furiously scribbling notes about uh camera moves and film grammar choices because that was the thing about no time to die that i loved so much right and that's a lot of my notes for a lot of movies um for this it's just kind of not that you know i'm not like thinking oh this push-in means this or this dolly means this most and you know and realistically when i'm writing those notes i'm making it up for myself anyway like the it's not like I'm inside Martin Scorsese's head and understand why he moved the camera this way. So yeah, we're just you're like... writing down the
1: correct answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um, and so, you know, I'm always looking for those things on the second watch when I'm going through these movies, and there's just not a lot that jumped out to me. Um, and it just sort of felt like a movie made from a utilitarian perspective um, because they probably had to move fast, you know? And I think there's yeah. there's the the... The one that jumped out to me um, was, you know, so like early on when um, Terry and Rudy are in the car together, you know, we're, we're looking at, um, we're getting a shot reverse shot. And from Rudy's angle, he's looking up at Terry and from Terry's angle, the camera's looking down at Rudy, you know, it's just sort of like Rudy, there are two ways to look at this, right? Rudy sees, um, sees Terry as sort of an authority figure. That's why he's bigger in frame than, than we see when we cut to Rudy the other way to to see it is Rory Culkin is much shorter than Mark Ruffalo and they just sort of had to shoot it that way you know and um I accept either answer you know Uh, I think they're probably both right and um with with shot reverse shot like that usually there is one that just sort of like just feels right and that's what you go with and sometimes there's a justification uh thematically to that sometimes there's not um the one that sort of really opened my eyes to the the idea of the utilitarian shooting was i was watching and the conversation towards the end when brian is it's after the phone call where brian has quote-unquote fired sammy and then they're having their conversation in the branch right we get sort of this like slightly high angle 2 two shot while they're having the beginning of their conversation excuse me and um and when we cut when they cut to a close-up they cut to a close-up of sammy saying something along the lines of well i don't think now's a good time to fire somebody you're having an affair with you know and um and that's sort of how we work our way into into singles for the rest of the the scene you know sort of like she grabs some sort of power so we move in out of the two shot into just her face right and but then you sort of you watch the movie again and you realize that two shot exists earlier when they're having the discussion about the um colors of the monitor on the monitors and it's just the same two shot from the other side of Um, of the desk and, you know, it just sort of seems like, well, they probably just shot them in the same day and just sort of tried to switch it up a bit, you know? And, uh, I don't know. I think it's just sort of, it's not necessarily bad, you know, most movies don't have a lot of film grammar, uh, choices, choices made in them, you know, it's just usually the ones that we are talking about have a bunch because we're trying to have some sort of, um, i think we're trying to talk about things for an hour you know <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah yeah the one one that i did like and again it's not that the the composition of it is um really stunning i think maybe it's just an idea somebody had and you can get it quickly and it didn't depend on a lot of timing mm-hmm. and i think they already paid the fire department to make it rain <laughs> on the set yeah. so <laughs> the, let's do what we can yeah. is uh after uh, another difficult conversation um the family Terry is in the house and he just leans out the window to smoke. And it's just his kind of like head and shoulders at the window and his arm as he, as he smokes while it's raining.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, th- th- there's not really a need for that and it doesn't go on very long, but it just seems like it's the reminder that he can't fit into this domestic space, mm-hmm. you know, um, that he's trying and it- it's-, it's his house, you know, it's his childhood home and um, it's still, it's something that's become foreign to him and he's not really capable of functioning in that space. And, um, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it and it's just him wanting to have a cigarette, but it it seems like the, the people making this would be smart enough to, um, have some meaning behind that. And it's, it, it it doesn't seem like it's just him having that moment of stress relief to him. It it, it very well could be, but, um, it, it, to me, it just screams that it's, he's out of place here he's the fish out of water and as much as he it seems like he, he loves his sister a lot and it seems like he loves his nephew and again doesn't always probably treat them as well as you should have if you love these people as much as you do but um just this moment of him being able to tolerate the rain um because he feels more comfortable in that than he does inside this domestic space that he's so unaccustomed to after years on the road or in jail or, you know, um, in Alaska or whatever it is he's been doing. Uh, It's it's just this brief moment that has no other meaning than, I think, to see his isolation and uh, that he feels excluded in this space that should feel so, like, homely to him.
0: Yeah, and I think there are are a number of short pieces in this movie um, that communicate things like that and i think that that's something that um would also depending on how i've never read a lot screenplay like depending on how he writes his screenplays like he might have described that as being the reason why he's hanging out um hanging out the window you know that seems like a very playwright thing to put in the stage directions right um, yeah, sure. just to give the reason why somebody is hanging out the window and it's sort of yeah the actual the physical act is um is certainly meaningful and and you're right that the people making this movie are definitely smart enough, you know, like, um, <laughs> yeah. to to sort of put that thought into it. And I think there are a bunch of smaller moments too that are coming to mind is the shot of the hammer in the rain after um, we've seen Rudy and Terry a few, a, a day earlier, maybe, um, you know, uh, Rudy being taught how to use a hammer properly. Um, and then we s- That rainy day we see that shot of the hammer just lying on the um on the wood that they had been working on and it's just pouring rain and the the reason and then we cut to them doing something else you know and it's sort of why they're it's communicating to us why they're not doing the same activity you know because they can't they're being rained out um and it's you know three second shot it's a scene in its own but i bet that's in the screenplay because it, it communicates a lot to me in one of the few shots of this movie that doesn't have a human being in it probably, you know? And, um, the other one is, I, I really like that. There's a sequence of, um, as Terry, I believe it's after Terry has left the house, but before he has left the town, um, we just get this quick wordless scene between Sammy and Bob just having lunch silently, you know? And, um, And it's just, I think that sort of tells us, I think that gives gives us a lot of progression on the whole Bob aspect of the storyline. Because at this point, as we were talking about, um, that events happen in this movie, a lot of events have happened. And outside of the deaths that happened right off the bat, the biggest events have happened. And Sammy just sort of, I I think that scene really communicates to us that Sammy has been through the worst of what she's going to see for now in this chapter of you can count on me um
1: yeah. and of the you can count on me extended universe yes exactly yeah.
0: followed by two can count on me and you can count on three <laughs> um and w- there's just the uh there's just that sort of silent moment where she's just comfortable there you know and to to tie into when you know the big event that I'm talking about when when rudy and and Terry are missing and she is uh very terrified of where they are you know she calls bob and bob comes over because she wants to have a car ready because terry took her car um and you know he's just sitting there silently while she's sorting it out and i think that's sort of um that's almost i think she's starting to view that as as like a calming presence and whether or not her opinion changes on that um i don't think this movie definitely posits the idea that um bob's gonna repropose and she's definitely gonna say yes you know mm-hmm. um i almost kind of leaned the opposite but uh i think that um i don't know i think that that little scene really communicates a lot to me about what sammy has been doing and again wordless you know yeah yeah,
1: yeah I, I think the um i think the scene with the, the one of the hammer when it's raining i think that's when Terry has failed to pick Rudy up Mm -hmm. and it's, it's loaded with meaning because that scene, you know, the one before where they are on that uh, construction site or whatever. um, You do see how meaningful it is to, to Sammy that they're doing this thing. And there, you know, he has this, I don't want to say role model, but this other figure in his life that seems to mean a lot to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, that, that 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 hammer's just really loaded with meaning. So that's that's what to do with it. You know, you you l- put a lot of meaning to it and then you just leave it alone. And you have it motionless on the ground and mm-hmm. there's all of these things that um that Terry's capable of doing and just is not consistent with it. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, seemingly Sammy's um, kind of one of her big struggles throughout this. You know, if if Terry was just a piece of shit wall to wall, you could have an easier time cutting him out of your life. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's that there are often these glimpses of someone who's really sweet and really caring, and it's not just that you've been through this thing together. You know, this this um, the, the death of your parents, but the way he is great with Rudy sometimes, the way that Rudy really looks up to him and wants to spend time with him, and I I like that there isn't that scene of Rudy, um this big emotional outpouring about how he wants to spend time with them and Sammy saying that he's a bad influence or whatever, you know, they, they kind of dance around some of those more obvious scenes that have been done to death that we don't need to see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think that's one of the strengths of this. It's, you, you know, kind of enough about Terry <laughs> and you, you get the sense that really, really loves it. And, he, you know, he says he's so bored fishing and there's, there's a bunch of these moments where um, it could just be a lot kind of more saccharine and, kind of grossly sweet and they we just don't get that and yeah i mean that's not what you look for in a kind of a lot of i understand but uh that's just one of the strengths it just feels more um more lived in and the way that this movie gets across so much of that stuff with um with with subtlety and, and um just good performances and good writing is something that um made me enjoy it
0: no, for sure. And I think that, you know, off off the top, when I was talking about the sort of paramount classics of it all, the indie wing of uh, Big Studio. And I said that, you know, it produced some groaners. It produced a lot. I can't remember the names off the top of my head because, you know, I saw them all 20 years ago when this, this was happening and I was just renting any DVD that existed. And the reason we're talking about this one is because, you know, there are so many hometown indie dramas starring <laughs> um, not a list actors but people working their way to the b list actors you know who this is their big solo um this is what they've been working towards this is their their first lead role um this is their their time to shine and similar similarly can be said about the writer or the director whoever and um more often than not those don't deliver those don't end up being great movies and this one just it works you know because everybody's up to the task and even though like you said it doesn't it doesn't go for the saccharin thing and the reason those things the a movie like this can be a groaner is because it goes for too much like too much saccharine uh, stuff that we're just not interested in and um yeah it's you can count on me as not an a totally unique movie like just by the the description of it it's just sort of like the execution of every element of it just is at a higher level than than so many of these other um Indie dramas, especially that exist around this time, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah. should uh, and and we have Kenneth Lonergan to, to thank. Yes, yeah, obviously some other people, and um, I think the music is again a kind of similar to Manchester by the Sea. It's mm-hmm. obviously like it's done by. and Margaret? And Margaret, yeah, is it just uh, Leslie Barber, um, Canadian, okay. um. Do you think it works as well here? Cuz I, I think you liked it in those ones, right?
0: Yes. Um Yeah, I think I remember I remember um it being a little too much in the police station in Manchester by the sea. Um yes. I think we were on the same page there. Um but uh but yeah, it works it works in this and it definitely works in Margaret because like the thing that I love so much about Margaret is like it's a it's a teen movie made by somebody who's like 50, you know? And, uh, but you know, it's sort of putting the 50 year old brain um, through the, the uh, rigors of what Anna Paquin's character, who I believe is named Lisa in that movie um, is going through at that time. And, um, and it really, it really works for the sort of like the grandness of what that movie is communicating. And um, it works in, you can count on me. I think it's more understated and you can count on me. Yeah, and it's not I, just
1: sweeping and epic. It's still kind sort of like orchestral in the, the instrumentation, but it never feels like it's trying to be as big.
0: Exactly, and I think that is important, you know, because it's it matches the movie. You know, it's about these. Um, it's a movie about these sort of timeless themes, and the the music sounds timeless. But the the things that happen are never too um, too grand, so the music should never be too grand, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Yeah. What about his cameo?
0: Um, I would I would say it's more than a cameo. I don't know. He's in three scenes yeah, in this movie, right? That's, that's true. Um, it's funny. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it is funny seeing him pop up in all of his movies. It's so, he seems so like the type of person who doesn't want to be in front of a camera, <laughs> but he just keeps putting himself in front of a camera. It's very funny to me. Um, he seems
1: comfy at this one, but I, I know what you mean generally. Like from everything I know about him, it seems like that would be the last thing he wants.
0: Yeah um i think he's i think it's interesting that he plays this role in this movie um one i like i like the in general i like treatment of religion in movies that is just sort of um you know maybe it's not real you know like <laughs> that sort of and especially coming from somebody who in the church i think that's sort of just an interesting idea like the i the sort of idea of ch- the changing idea of faith even within people who believe in god like sammy sort of understanding that um ron is not going to shout at her you shouldn't have sex with matthew broderick he is married and, and uh, his wife is pregnant yada 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 um and her sort of like wondering if maybe the old way was better and all of these things um i really like that scene that's the scene that really unlocked the idea of um there's really nobody in control, and this whole movie is about people trying to find some sort of um, some sort of governing body <laughs> over their life, you know? Yeah. Um, because they they are realizing that they have no control over their own lives or their own their own actions. Um, they just sort of are going with the wind. And I really enjoy that that um, short scene. And I really love that when Sammy asks, like, "Wouldn't it be better off with sort of an absolute right or wrong?" <laughs> we cut to Ron. And his reaction is to shrug. You know, I think that's really funny. And uh, also it is... um an interesting piece of casting given that he is the director right like the idea that we have in our head is the director is somebody with all the answers you know and so the director uh, is god yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and he is putting himself in this movie as somebody who doesn't really know anything you know and like is is admitting that on camera in the movie that he's directed and i think that's that's a really funny meta, meta touch that um, i never really thought about until this week but uh yeah, yeah and so it's, and the
1: yeah. the director is God, and then him playing the representative of God, who is like, Yeah, maybe absolutes don't really exist, and uh I'm not here to tell you what to do or, or how this how this universe is set up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: And the whole um, you know, I think he I think he just sort of throughout the movie in his few scenes, you know, he talks to Terry about religion when um Sammy asks him to come to the house and You know, he's just asking about um, how, you know, do do you feel like your life can have meaning even if God doesn't exist or whatever they're talking about? And the the other one is him telling Sammy about how um, she can only really control how she influences other people. And I think that's an important aspect of this movie and of Sammy, because um, as I don't want to say out of control, but as is sort of impulsive and, um, you know, she makes some decisions that I would describe as bad throughout this movie. And it given all the, all the variables of play, uh, Sammy doesn't really do anything too questionable in front of her son, you know, like, and that's what she is trying to control is sort of his outlook on life. And, um, she's trying to make sure that Rudy can get what she couldn't after a certain point because her parents died. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting thing to think about when watching that movie is that Sammy is... Everything that Sammy is going through, she's going through behind closed doors. And the one time that she does sort of um, break down a little bit in front of Rudy is when he pours too much syrup on on uh, his pancakes, you know, and she's, yeah. she's shouting... At, like, this is towards the end of the movie. She's shouting at him, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to stop it. And, she's, you know, she's shouting at herself at that point, you know, and I think that yeah. she just... She needs to realize that, um, or she has to shout that to realize that she's talking to herself. And I think the thing that, you know, Rudy immediately stops and immediately comes over to comfort her and say, I'm stopping. And I think that that is important for Sammy to sort of see a way out of the situation that she's in. She can see that, um, you know, somebody who shares DNA with her is, is able to, um, stop pouring syrup onto pancakes <laughs> you know this is
1: butterworth control yeah you exactly control yeah. yeah yeah no i i i no, i love that a lot and even before that it's in that same conversation where she's kind of demanding ron be more black and white about things and yeah. deal more in absolutes uh, and he just, yeah, he shrugs. He doesn't bring that fire and brimstone thing that she's sort of looking for. And I, I mean, it seems to be the more meaningful way out is when he talks with, um, with, uh, with Sammy and Terry together. And she's trying to get Terry to change his ways, and Ron is doing, I think, a good job of trying to be a good. Um, moral, ethical representative without it being completely from a religious standpoint. Mm-hmm. And him not not, not even knowing it, but he said, the best thing that uh, Sammy can do is be a good example for you.
0: Yeah,
1: And it just turns this mirror on her where she's she wants things to be seemingly at this point, she wants someone from the outside to tell her she's doing something wrong so she can stop doing it. And he's saying, you know you, you usually know if you're wrong like if, if, yeah. if you look at what you're doing and you feel bad about it okay wh- why do you need some other external influence and, uh, this movie doesn't come off as anti-religious by any means and um i just think it comes off as this kind of golden rule moral standpoint of yeah if, if you feel like you're being a shitty person Stop being a shitty person, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you probably are being a shitty person if you if, if you're that suspicious of your own actions. Um, and, and Terry kind of turns it on her later and says, "You know what kind of example you're setting for us tonight?" But I think they do a really good job of walking a fine line there, where they don't um, they don't just shit on religion. They don't. Um, they don't put it up on this really high pedestal either. Mm -hmm. And they just leave it to every individual to dictate their own actions, their own morality. And you typically know the best. And uh, Terry and Sammy are coming at it from different angles. And Ron's just kind of playing it right down the middle and saying something that's not overtly religious, not anti-religious, obviously. And um, it's just this (laughs) very cool moral compass. And I think that that's, you know, it's funny, as we said, for the director to look um, kind of like he doesn't have any answers. But without I, I think they do a good trick there by providing answers without being didactic and saying, you know, more or less follow your heart and yeah. define your own morality. And that's the, the more true sense of reality than something you're going to find in a, a sacred text or by rejecting a sacred text on principle.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um Oh, uh, talking about finding your own path, one shot that uh, uh, we should mention is when they all come home from the police station uh, and they all walk in the door together, they all go in three separate directions. Rudy goes upstairs, Sammy goes right, and Terry goes left um, into different rooms. And, um, you know, since I've been uh, talking shit about (laughs) about the visuals of this movie constantly, um, I feel like that, that... is worth uh, mentioning, especially when you're talking about people having to make their own decisions and choosing yeah. their own paths. Yeah, um, right. Let's, uh, should we talk about the ending? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's good, a really nice scene, and I think it does a good job of, um, and I'm talking specifically about them waiting for the bus together, um, but the lead up to it is just as good. Like the idea that um, talking about, you know, and not getting too saccharine or whatever, Terry shows up to say goodbye to Rudy, but he doesn't show up on time, you know, like it's sort of the, the baby steps thing where, um, you know, even the night before his sister is saying to him, like, I don't want to tell Rudy you're coming. If you're not going to show up, you know, like giving him so many opportunities and like, um, and reminding him a number of times, just how important it is. And he's still, you know, he's still late. Um, he shows up, but, and I think that's something that's really interesting is, Uh, Rudy's reaction to him being there and Terry talking about how I'm going to write you letters. I write a hell of a goddamn letter. And Rudy says, we'll see. Like, you, you know, like he's just sort of I think he's starting. I think that's a really interesting moment from Rudy's perspective, because when we look at what what he has learned throughout the movie, you know, he's gone from. Uh, Not knowing anything about his father to knowing everything about his father in the span of about three days, you know, and a lot of that happens in the span of about 10 minutes. Um, And he's just sort of open to the he's sort of starting to realize the idea that um, not every adult is trustworthy. You know, he especially um, with Terry, who he spent the most time with uh, throughout this movie, other than his own mom, um, he... He's just sort of realizing that, you know, even if he is this person who he's related to and who he loves, he's not necessarily always going to come through, you know? And I think that that seeing that seed of doubt in Rudy is, is a really cool moment in this movie, and it's something that is barely, like, um, it's just... It's just sort of almost like a throwaway line. It's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. You know? And, yeah. But he's eight. You know, like, that's a big moment in that kid's life <laughs> as sort of having doubts about uh, adults being truthful. Like, I, I think once you start to realize that, um, quote unquote, authority figures don't necessarily have the authority that you you thought they, or you had presented, or sorry, put upon them yourself, you know? Um I think that's a that's a big moment in any any person's life, and it happens at different ages for different people, and it just so happens to be Rudy was eight, and I think that's a really interesting, interesting moment. You know?
1: Yeah, there, there's sort of this muddying between the male authority figures in his life. You know, he's confused about, oh, I thought my dad lived in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I thought, uh, you know, he kind of sees, it seems as though he sees these older men as kind of one conglomerate or sort of interchangeable, and that they don't do any wrong, and maybe the police officer and some male teachers and, you know, maybe Larry, we don't see any of their relationship, but they all seem, um, maybe that they, they've all been somewhat good to him or he hasn't seen the bad side of it. And I think you're right. This is (laughs) sort of a moment where he has, uh, he's starting to distinguish them from each other and that they don't all do the things that they say they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And Rudy spends so much of the last part of this movie, Saying nothing or saying very little, you know, he's the one who says maybe we should call instead of just showing up, yeah. and all, all these things that, um, you know, I imagine a, a kid would just want the immediate gratification and not think of the long-term uh, repercussions of it. And we see that start happening, and then we see this, um, you know, awful interaction that he's forced to watch, and he gets pushed to the ground, and it it, it seems like his. Uh, endlessly optimistic view of older men in his life has been shattered and he's just being, um, you know, rightfully distinguishing with it now and says, "Okay, yeah, sure, you say you're going to write, but you've also said you're going to pick me up every day. There's a time (laughs) you said we were going fishing and then we weren't because of. You know, he wouldn't know this, but like your your petty thing got in the way, and you were taking it out on me because my mom was trying to hold your feet to the fire about yeah. something. You know, he, but he's then we sort did of go ins-
0: fishing. You know, yeah, I know exactly,
1: but he he's just <laughs> sort then of fishing
0: turned fishing turned <laughs> into meeting my dad. <laughs>
1: yeah, who told me he I wasn't his dad. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, yeah, or he wasn't my dad. Um, no, but I, I do think that that's like a um kind of a smaller thing that they don't lean on too hard. That is, as you said, kind of one throwaway line that um is probably very tied into the developmental process of this child and uh his relationship with 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 terry and seemingly any other adult male he interacts with
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure and um continuing on that with the the bus stop conversation between um between terry and sammy like one, the line, it's all going to be all right, Sammy, comparatively, is hilarious. Um, when Terry says that, uh, the pause that he puts before comparatively is is really great. It's also funny hearing him say it's all going to be all right because he is just like the least trustworthy person. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's what's really compelling about that scene to me is he's just saying all of these things that are definitely going to happen. And the reason Sammy is crying is because she doesn't believe him at all. And I think that, um, that's really, that's really heartbreaking. It's really tough for anybody to communicate. And I think, um, Laura Linney does a really good job communicating that. And, um, and it's just, uh, it just works, you know? And I think that, you know, we've seen her, um, have her doubts about trusting terry a number of times throughout the movie and then just sort of going into just you know being like okay i'll give him this try i'll give him this try even something as um you know in the scheme of this movie kind of innocuous but him allowing him to sort of fix the plumbing you know um even though she's like maybe i should just call a plumber she says that immediately you know like when it's first brought up and um but you know, it still lets him do a little bit of it. And then eventually it's proven that she should have just called the plumber, you know? And, yeah. and this movie is just her continually trusting Terry and then kind of regretting it. And, um, and I think that's the, the reason that scene really works is because um, he's saying all of these nice things that he's definitely going to do. And maybe he'll do one of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think the, um, the choice to have, him get on a bus and have her get in a car is a really uh, a really interesting idea because, you know, public transit inherently involves sort of just uh, going where the world takes you. <laughs> you know, you get on this yeah. thing that, that uh, takes you wherever and, and um, you know, you know the destination. Uh, although I guess he did get on the wrong bus earlier in the movie, but, <laughs> um, you know, if you read the schedule properly, you know that, uh, you know where it's taking you. But Sammy is, uh, I think the movie leave sammy with control of her own destiny you know and i think she she opens the window she lets the world in a little bit um but she is still driving the car you know and and i think that we leave this movie with terry kind of in the same place as where he is at the beginning and i think sammy has been through a lot but has at least learned something um and like you said this is these could easily be this could just be a chapter of of a book in their story you know um something like this could come along and happen again and you know like the the car crash going back to the car crash from the beginning it's just sort of this innocuous moment and then somebody um tries to make a turn at a time when you shouldn't make a turn and then somebody has to veer out of the way and they get hit by an 18-wheeler you know and sammy is only in control until something pulls into her path and she has to uh, veer out of its way again you know and it's just it's gonna happen but it's not yet you know like yeah end credits are rolling you know we gotta wait till the till ruffalo comes back or you know until the next crisis shows up yeah yeah 100% yeah all right thanks for listening to the mcguffman uh check back next time